Welcome to the one within all to another episode of the Universe podcast. I'm super excited for this one. I feel like the energy has been building up all week. And in particular today, as I reviewed the material we're going to be speaking about, I just felt more and more excited. So what I think is a good pairing with this conversation, if you haven't heard it yet afterwards, or if you're catching this not live, maybe on the replay, you might want to go do this first. I recommend checking out the Vibrant from a couple weeks ago where we talked about the Therapeutae. In this conversation with Dylan and Slick, we got into the College of Alexandria and how we may be looking at an Egyptian sort of bottlenecking of the world religions and systems in the sense of professional mystics being sent out around the world to set up shop with their version of similar spiritual uh, stuff. <laughs> so in today's conversation with the great Mario Garza, we're going to be talking about Kabbalah, the tree of life, the Sephirot, and the Klipoth or Klipoth. Very, very exciting stuff to be delving into. But with all the stuff we talk about, spiritually speaking, I want to bring an element of skepticism, a grain of salt, not to dismiss the value of these things, but to also not drink the Kool-Aid and look at it as some sort of transcendent deliverance of the uh, pure divine logos. <laughs> Instead, I happen to see this as something that's an evolving system. And when we look at the origins of Kabbalah in particular, it seems that you can't really dig any further back in the roots of the tree of life or the, this idea of the Sephiroth beyond about the 13th century. Now, there are works and writers referenced from earlier than that, but with the Sefer Raziel Hakmalah, Hamalach, Sefer Raziel Hamalach, or the Bahir or the Zohar, the texts where a lot of this information seems to derive from, there's nothing further back than the 13th century extant. And so we must ask ourselves the question, is the emergence of this Kabbalah in some way related to the fall of the Templars from around the same time? I do happen to be aware that the Templars employed Jude Judaic peoples as their sort of bookkeepers and, and clerks in the time that they were very powerful 
And so there could be some sort of shifting of the system over to a more Hebraic one. I don't know, just ideas to put out there. But we've got Mario Garza on deck. He's prepared lots of material for us to help us overview the system as a whole. And I'm very excited. Mario is the host over at Symbolic Studies. Excellent researcher, very well equipped with very, very powerful reference material. Always a gentleman and a scholar. Perhaps one of the greatest yes and talk uh, talk show guests at the whole game. So really excited to be getting into it with them. Mario, thanks for being here, buddy. Welcome to the universe. Have me, man. Oh. I appreciate it. Yeah. So what's new over at Symbolic Studies kind of before we dive deep or just with you in life, you know, how, how you been? Oh, I'm solid, dude. Um, you know, I've been leaning more into the live streams as of late. So I just did a stream a week or two ago about the pentagram as an example, and it was all inspired by some of this research, actually. So I was prompted um, to do a conversation about the Clipothic tree, the tree of death, some people call it. It's really exploring the roots of this system. And it seems like every couple of years, there's some new layer or thread that kind of pulls me back into wanting to know more about the system. And I completely agree with you too, man. Um, I mean, there are variations on this theme. There are people who put together alternative, you know, tree of life models, basically. And so I've seen a number of them throughout the years and it continues to evolve and people put their own take on it and whatnot. So this is very much a, uh, it's like a work in progress sort of thing, but you know, I take what I can away from the material, use it, uh, as needed and as a syncretist sort of guy, you know, I just want to know what all is out there and how, how people perceive the symbolism and how they, uh, perceive, you know, this system and how it relates to the signs and astrology and the tarot cards and things like that. So, um, I'm fascinated with it. So, Going down this rabbit hole as of late has been really intriguing because it's turned me uh, onto other threads of information that I've been pulling at. So I've been talking about some stuff on uh, my channel and then uh, my girlfriend's channel, uh, Michelle's Healing Home. We've done a couple of streams kind of related to some of this material, too. Uh, but otherwise, man, all is well. Uh, just doing my thing over here. You're looking healthier and stronger and you just got a good glow about you. So happy to see the sun is Blessing you guys over there, too. It's definitely been wonderful here. <laughs> it's a really good time of year, not going to lie. Oh, for sure. It was a long winter, <laughs> and so I'm really glad to be out of it. <laughs> I'm sure it is up in the Northwest. Yeah. Yep. So this idea of Kabbalah or the Tree of Life, it has to do with – it's like a representation. It's a, a roadmap, if you will, of the divine emanations of God, it, how God creates – the manifest reality ex nihilo out of nothing. And it also is meant to be a revelation on the path of ascent for man to return to God. Now, people who have been tuning in for a while with me might be aware that I'm not super big on the idea of ascension in the sense of there have been many cults out there in the past promising ascension. It's almost always part of the package in the forms of Gnosticism that are more escapist or like the world has fallen type of idea. So that's where a big part of the grain of salt comes for me. But on the other hand, as a symbol of the full model of reality or the way that our psychological dynamic is mirrored internally and in the flow of how nature builds things and the order in which one goes to two goes to three, all the way up to 10. I think that there's some cool stuff there. So, you know, it's not to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but 
Um, I, it, I, my thing is not <laughs> very pro ascension as a concept because I, I've said it before. I think that one of the biggest jives ever proffered by priestcraft as a way to sort of create a power differential of like, you need us. Not that every priest everywhere was always bad, but, and a lot of them are good, but the, you have this notion that the spiritual realm is separate from the physical realm. And to me, in my experience, direct experience of nature and reality, I don't think there is a separation. So anyway, what are your thoughts on this idea of the ascension? It's okay to disagree. You know, if you think ascending out of the realm is actually a good move, a lot of people in the chat probably do. It's all good. Yeah, no, um, I think it's more of a fascinating study for me symbolically, honestly. And so it's something that I have read quite a bit about and I have my own take on it. I've done presentations on Ascension material and some of the symbolism that is overlapping between various groups. People who follow my work know that I have, um, you know, this uh, reverence or this um, sort of thread that I've been pulling out for a while related to the northern sky and things like that. And that is actually what has gotten me back into wanting to learn more about this system is because there is a specific point in the tree of life that um, basically is the gateway quote unquote, to this other side, you know, whatever that might mean. And so as a syncretist symbologist, I just feel like I need to understand, even if uh, that's not where I'm personally at, or these aren't techniques that I personally follow, or even uh, put into practice, I want to have an understanding of what are the symbols that are always generally attributed to this ascension. And I'm happy, you know, you're skeptical about this, too, because I'm sure you're going to help me fill in the gaps with uh, some of the other angles with all of this stuff. So, you know, whatever people want to do, totally cool with me. Um, I do think, though, that um, Ascension as a field of study has spoken to me. And um, I'm not saying that uh, this is like the end all be all of what people should do or ought to do or that this is, uh, you know, personally my goal. But I'm just still kind of chewing on it and still just trying to wrap my head around, you know, what does this all speak to ultimately what's going on here, you know, and also too, kind of like, you know, what you're saying earlier before we even got on air it's like when did some of this material even come to be and who created it and for what purpose you know and stuff like that so it's all just very curious to me so just trying to integrate it and learn what i can totally man and then a more nuance to bring to the idea of ascension would be yes there is an evolution of ourselves spiritually as a soul and i think this idea of how our spiritual evolution might unfold categorized psychologically through this idea of the tree of life Kabbalah. I think that like I've been saying, I think there could be good value there. There is evident psychological evolution, physical evolution. We don't stay the same. We're not static. (laughs) And so I guess to me, it's just like to avoid the traps of escapism and avoid the ultimate victim consciousness of belief that the world is somehow like a prison for you. That's those are the traps I want to keep people away from. But then the beauty of the system that is there, I like that. So, but yeah, let's maybe before we kind of delve into the details of the tree of life, we could talk a bit about the history of it and what I've dug up about it and what you might have to say about it. So from what I can tell, looking for receipts, (laughs) on this system, the first version of the tree of life that is in any way similar to what we see today when you would look it up 
came from a book called the Porta Lucis, which is like the gateway to light or the, the gate of light. And this came from 1516. Uh, so here's a diagram from that book. And as you can see, one of the big differences here is that instead of the 22 paths, there are 17 paths, which I find very interesting. And I wanted to see what you might think of that. Uh, and then I'll kind of share what I think it might be from. Interesting. Yeah, no. Well, um, wasn't aware of the 17 path version, but as I was saying, there are so many different variations of this. I've seen some that are very symmetrical upward and downward, you know, so vertically um, I've seen lots of different takes from different groups, kind of, you know, creating hybrid systems that are more, um, you know, from just different cultures, basically, and kind of taking what they've learned from uh, this tradition and integrating new ideas and things like that. So um, off the top of my head, 17 versus 22, I can't say I have too many comments about that. But right now I am laser focused on uh, Doth, the hidden Sephiroth. And I can't help but acknowledge that where Doth would be right here, at least, you know, it kind of looks like it's where that split is, which is really the only curve between the paths between the different points. And so to me, I don't know if they had an understanding of Doth back then or if that's a newer sort of idea or concept. Um, I would actually really like to know uh, if that has always been part of the system or if this is just a, a modern sort of thing or whatever. But I can see it right there, right where the path splits off, right, uh, is where that hidden Sephiroth would be. So uh, that's kind of interesting to me. But, uh, yeah, I would have to study it a bit more, I think, to have more feedback. Well, to me, what comes up right away when I see 17 versus 22 is... Mm -hmm. 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Each of the paths is correspondent to a letter. Sure. That much is quite popular in the more modern versions of the system. Well, it just so happens that the Phoenicians had 17 letters and in some places 16, like for example, the letters that they brought to Greece through Cadmus, where the digamma being dropped gives them 16 instead of 17, but it could be either or. And in most cases, it's actually, mm. it's very often 17. Mm -hmm. So to me, I'm thinking, is this the original 17 letters of the alphabet that the Holy Sailors took around the world? To me, mm. I think that that's probably why it would start with that many, that number pathwise. And to me, that's the most, to me, that's the most evident uh, idea that could be related here. Right. Gotcha. I am just looking at the artwork and I do think it's very interesting. The fact that this figure here, uh, he's holding it from the bottom. And one of the things uh, I've heard just throughout the years is this idea that, uh, you know, there's no root system and that there's a lack of roots to the system. Uh, Balderson was the first person who kind of shared this idea with me. And here he is holding what would be the trunk, but he looks like he's pointing down to the root system. So it almost looks like he's implying this clipothic version, which is basically the root or shadow system of the tree, this tree of death, if you want to call it that. And so he's uh, pointing to something that's hidden or invisible. And so it makes me wonder if there's some sort of connection there or correspondence with that, if he's actually speaking to this hidden root system. So the root system isn't visible in the traditional Kabbalistic tree of life, the, the normal framework or setup, but um, it is there actually. It, there's, there's a hidden sort of gateway to that system, basically, which we'll be getting into. So that's one of the things that I do think is kind of curious right there. 
And that's what I'm most excited to make sure we get into with plenty of space because that's an area of the system I don't know a lot about. And I'm curious. Yeah. Now to just continue the sort of antiquity question a little further, this is a version of the tree of life that comes from a guy named Kircher and his book, Oedipus Egypticus. Mm. Very, very famous book on Egyptology kind of opened the doors to Egyptian syncretism back in, I think this was published in 1652. So here we have a very powerful German Jesuit providing us with the, the Jewish mysticism as it is currently known, that is mm. Kabbalah. To me, that's very strong evidence. Also, the fact that it's coming from a, a book on Egypt, Egyptology. To me, this is just the fingerprints all over of the Therapeutae, the College of Alexandria. And that it, this system is definitely an evolving, syncretic, or eclectic system. Not a perfect transmission of some divinely inspired wisdom from the past, but to be built on, to be refined, to be questioned, to be challenged which I like to me, that's where the value is. You know, the, the danger is dogma. That's always been the danger. So, um, you know, the eclectic nature of Jewish mysticism of Kabbalah, of the Christian versions of Kabbalah, the, the very fact that that's in the mix is evidence of the therapeutic because one of the names of that sect, apart from being called Gnostics or physicians or et cetera, was the eclectics because they were about pulling the lost threads of spirituality from different corners of the world back into one unified coherent system. And so this is a pretty cool chart. <laughs> this was a plate in this Oedipus Egypticus book and would probably be worth quite a lot of study. Actually, I just have the image. I don't ha I don't have a lot to say about it. Excellent. Interesting. Well, just like we've talked about before with uh, cosmology and things like that, it's like the map isn't the terrain. And so I think the same is true here where it's like we might have this map. It might be really interesting. There might be things to it that do make sense that resonate, but it doesn't necessarily mean that this uh, is a accurate representation of the spirit realm, you know, so it's just a map, just like Google Maps, you know, Google Maps is not the terrain itself. Um, Sometimes Google Maps is intentionally deceptive about, you know, certain <laughs> things related to curvature and whatnot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but dude, you're really sharp with language. Um, I would love to know because this is my laser focus right now. Those two tablets right there where that hidden sephiroth would be. Uh, can you make out what that means? What uh, what they're saying there by chance? And if not, no worries. So I see the tablets of Moses. Um, it looks like it's saying basically Lex Moise Legis. I think... And then Lex Moise is Ombra Legis Eterna. I think it's like something about the script on the script of Moses or the law of Moses uh, and something about eternity. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. I, someone in the chat will probably be able to give me a better Latin uh, read on that. But yeah, gotcha. interesting that the tablets of Moses are there in that space of the hidden sphere. Isn't that what that would otherwise have been? Yeah, 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 exactly right. Oh, so this is a Athanasius Kircher, by the way. Uh, <laughs> Jennifer was telling me that Homie Romy's been super into Kircher lately. People okay. should do help us out and do some research on the Reverend Kircher and his Oedipus Egypticus. 
authors that I really like, such as Godfrey Higgins, referenced that work quite a bit. I think it had a profound impact back in the 17th century. Hmm. Yeah, but we have a nice group here piled in. Welcome, everybody that's uh, just joining us. I think it's a great time to maybe start to look at the modern version of the system and let Mario walk us through a little bit. He prepared a few images for us, and um, yeah, I'm, I'm into it. Nice. So just to be completely transparent and clear, one of the reasons why I started looking back into the system is because of my research related to the North, related to this ascension idea, related to the cosmic axis, the world axis, this bridge between realms. And I learned a year or two ago that there is a connection with the northern sky and this hidden Sephiroth. And so I had to learn more. Uh, Juan from the Juan on One podcast, a friend of uh, both of ours, right? He prompted a conversation about this fellow named Kenneth Grant. And he asked me if I wanted to do a show about Kenneth Grant and what book we should maybe read and talk about. And so we ended up picking, I chose actually, uh, The Night Side of Eden by Kenneth Grant, which is all about this, uh, the hidden Sephiroth, the Klippothic Tree of Death, if you want to call it that, this shadow side or the root side of the tree of life. And it did not disappoint. I learned quite a bit symbolically. I thought it was very rich. I thought that there was a lot to take away from it. I thought it was fascinating actually for a few different reasons. And what I kind of realized in my research is that what we're looking at the uh, tree of life as it is, as uh, most people are familiar with that in many ways is actually like an exoteric system. So this would be more of an exoteric system, more of a right-hand path sort of thing, if you want to call it that. And then there's also this more esoteric system that is oftentimes referred to as uh, the tunnels of set. And so instead of pathways, they are looked at actually as more of like a tunnel-based system. So there's this underground sort of concept. And so there are many, many metaphors that can be used here from tunnels to roots. Uh, like it's like a sewer system kind of. And basically, you know, the last vibrant was about that. (laughs) Unintentionally, I I didn't even mean to sync it up like that. No, exactly. I noticed that. And I was like, oh, well, that's really interesting. (laughs) So um, so it's really just kind of like it's the you know, this book is called The Night Side of Eden, the book that I read. And so it's the night side of, you know, um, this whole entire system. So it has a lot to do with just the darker elements of existence. There's a whole cosmological sort of framework that comes along with it. Um, in the book, he gets into a lot about um, the mythology related to Set and uh, his mother from the Egyptian perspective. Um, one of the things that I thought was really fascinating that the book also got into, which we've talked about a little bit, right, is H.P. Uh, Lovecraft and the Lovecraftian mythos and how there's a lot of practitioners um, who are using the Lovecraftian deities and gods for their magical workings. And that this seems to be a, a pantheon for uh, a lot of modern magicians and they're choosing to work with it. And that these ancient ones or old ones exist on this other side. You know, he even refers to it as uh, this would be universe a, and then there's universe B and that there is contact, there is um, communication, and there is a lot to be said about the relationship between this universe and the other side or the great beyond. The whole premise, though, the whole idea is that this other side is the genesis of 
this place right here. So in a way, it kind of reminds me of the Sophia Demiurge sort of story. This idea of a uh, a great mother, this queen of heaven. She's very much heavily related to the the dark feminine, this this chaos mother or chaos goddess, and that she birthed, you know, a masculine entity. And this would be set symbolically under this tradition. And so um, the tunnels of set, this is his system, you know, and that um, he and her uh, apparently in this tradition, they strongly associate them with the northern sky and that uh, they say that set is hiding behind Ursa Major and that uh, Ursa Major is this divine, dark feminine goddess, this primordial mother, if you will. And um, she corresponds with Ursa Major and the North Star and a lot of the symbolism and a lot of the, um, you know, work that I've done on the northern sky is very much present in a lot of this material. And this hidden Sephiroth Doth, the gateway to the root system, the gateway to the shadow system of the tree of life, they heavily correspond with uh, North. And so literally, I mean, it was repeated multiple times, like Doth is North. And so to me, this is very interesting because my work, what I, the thread I've been pulling at is this idea that um, the North, you know, the, the world axis, the cosmic axis from the North pole to the Northern sky, you know, this is the bridge uh, between these different realms, you know? And so it seems as though in the system, this is what they acknowledge as well. And so I thought that was all very, very uh, interesting. But if you want to pull up that uh, that slide there that you had up momentarily, one of the things I've been talking about is the fact that there are three pillars here, right? So there's the left pillar and the right pillar. And so there's a uh, masculine pillar and a feminine pillar. But there's always this middle pillar and this central pillar goes beyond the other two pillars. So it extends above and below the other two pillars. So... If you progress to the next slide, you'll just see that I have the three pillars right there, right? So whenever you have two pillars, you have that central implied pillar. The central pillar is taller and uh, longer than the other two pillars. And it, this isn't uncommon to see in Freemasonic artwork with the two pillars. You know, I think of the pillars of uh, Hercules. I think of uh, the various pillars that you see throughout the tarot, like the... Um, high priestess you know and even uh, the hierophant oftentimes has those two pillars to the side of him and so i've long associated that central pillar with the central trunk of the world tree of the cosmic tree basically so to me it would make sense that if there is a transitional point or an opening or a gateway that it would exist somewhere in that central pillar right and so um According to this material and Kabbalists, which I don't consider myself to be one, by the way, but there's this whole idea of uh, the metaphor of crossing the abyss and crossing the abyss is to go through Doth. And so if you progress to the next slide, you'll see that I've highlighted that central uh, central pillar. And then I've also highlighted Doth, that hidden or invisible Sephiroth. And so crossing through that Sephiroth or going through the Sephiroth. Uh, they relate to crossing the abyss and there's a lot of metaphors. Some, can I throw something in Please, really short? Go yeah. Go We're talking it. about a crossing, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, Doth is philologically Thoth. It's the same word. D and TH easily interchange. There you go. And that's the exactly. crossroads. That's Mercury. That's Hermes, et cetera. 
Exactly. Exactly. Right. 100%. And so, um, and you know, my, the thing I've been saying for a while, right. Is, uh, Hermes being the psychopomp, he uses the trunk of the world tree to access these different places. Right. And so he's familiar with what's happening above. He's familiar with what's happening below. So, um, so this Sephiroth is a in between it's a gateway right it's it's an opening from this side to the other side you know under their system and on the other side supposedly apparently you know everything is undifferentiated it's it's pure spirit so um symbolically it relates to the shadow or the hidden or the all essentially um and so they strongly relate it to the divine feminine. And so I'm starting to see this connection between the North and this primordial mother or primordial goddess. And that Ursa major, the seven stars of Ursa major that go around the pole star that um, she was once looked at as not just a great bear, but a great mother bear. And that um, there are several myths. I'm not sure how far back they go. I would love to know, you know, but there are several myths that suggest that this goddess had seven children um, originally. And then she had an eighth child. And this eighth child is actually set. And in the material, I was really fascinated to learn that according to uh, some of these Clipothic practitioners, that they also associate Sirius with being the eighth child. So they consider Sirius to be the eighth child of Ursa Major. And they consider Sirius to be very much associated with Set as well. And Set um, corresponds with a number of animals, but including uh, the canine, including a dog. A dog. And so um, Ursa Major being the mother and uh, Sirius, the dog star, is one of her children, which I thought was really, really fascinating. And so there's this history between the Northern sky and Sirius that I was previously unaware of. Supposedly. That's great stuff, man. Yeah. So um, if you want to, we can look at more slides. If you have other stuff that you want to bring up or talk about, there's so many different threads with all of this stuff. Uh, I mean, we can just go in a number of different angles. Yeah, I think we'll go through your images uh, until, you know, and then maybe work in some of my stuff. But I wanted to say about that serious connection that I find interesting back to the idea of the cross or the crossing mm -hmm. that one of the oldest versions of the cross as a sort of holy symbol has to do with marking the point of inundation from the Nile and that Sirius was also related to its rising at a certain point of the year, marking mm -hmm. the point of the inundation period beginning. So that's right. Again, you know, more of the Egyptian roots of this system. My understanding is actually, I believe it was the beginning of Leo. I could be mistaken on that one, but I think it might be the beginning of Leo and Leo has a lot of um, associations. The line has a lot of associations with the rising of the Nile as well. And so my understanding, too, is that when the Nile was rising, that uh, a lot of lions would actually come out of the woodwork to um, to drink the water from the Nile. And 
the lion also, or Leo, being opposite Aquarius, there's this whole fascinating history with lions being on both sides of like a waterway or lions actually, you know, lion statues having water coming out of their mouths and things like that. So there is this fascinating Leo water connection. But if I'm not mistaken, that it um, it lined up at one point, perhaps not now. The uh, heliacal, heliacal rising of Sirius being at the beginning of uh, Leo season. And then Sirius being Osiris or Osiris, Osiris, and mm. that being the twin brother of Set. You know, the tree above, the tree below, the Gemini of it all as well. Right, right, right. Yeah, no, exactly. For sure. Um, and so if you, yeah, look at this High Priestess card. You'll notice, I'm sure most people here are probably familiar with the fact that um, the high priestess right behind her, this is the famous Rider Waite version, but she has those pomegranates behind her on that tapestry, right, on that fabric. And those pomegranates are laid out to mirror the tree of life. And just, you know, I just think it's very, very intriguing that her face or her head is right where that hidden Sephiroth would be as well. And uh, I think that this makes a lot of sense. And this card corresponds with Gimel, which means camel. And one of the things I thought was really interesting to learn recently, but this whole idea of the camel, which I've heard things like this before, but it was put very, very uh, succinctly in uh, some material I was reading uh, lately. The camel being the Ark of the Desert. The camel being the boat of the desert or being the uh, chariot of the desert, if you will. And so Gimel, the uh, camel, uh, the camel has been associated with this crossing the abyss as well. And so some of the symbolism with crossing this abyss is actually crossing through this desert. And sometimes the other side is even referred to as the desert of Set as well. These tunnels of Set have been referred to as the, the desert of Set. And so the desert symbolism is there. Here you can see those two pillars. She is the middle pillar, further emphasizing this divine feminine uh, gateway sort of aspect. And um, woman is a divine gateway. You know, that's just the fact of the matter. That's how we get here. So uh, whether people have a understanding or reverence for the divine feminine or dark feminine, which I think are just interchangeable, in my opinion, um, that is the deal, certainly. And then she's wearing that cross right on her chest as well. And so my new understanding of the cross has a lot to do with this crossing over. You know, um, we recently had a uh, pet pass away. And I was thinking of the symbolism of what I want to have as a marker on their little burial site. And I chose a cross. You know, I'm not a Christian, but I have an understanding of what the cross represents, you know, and I think that it makes sense to mark a site with the cross. And I'm not this has nothing to do with the church or anything like that, you know, but I do think now of this crossing over of this crossing to the other side sort of business and that the center of the cross is the fifth point within the cross. And in this material, um, there is a big thing with the number five being this spiritual number that exists between the physical and metaphysical that exists between the material and the spiritual. And so the number five and all of the mathematics that are um, that correspond with the number five and the pentacle, right? The pentagram and all of that. 
um, it's really interesting that I think five in and of itself might be a bridge between this domain and the other domain, you know, and that there is something transcendental about the number five. And uh, the Hierophant is the fifth card. And he is a model of the Pope, which uh, my understanding is the etymology of uh, Pontifex Maximus is that he is the greatest bridge builder. He's a great bridge builder. So literally the number five and the Pope acting as this mediator between the people and God, if you will. And then also too the correspondence with the Hierophant, again, the fifth card, um, you know, from a Hebrew perspective is Vav, which is nail. And a nail is a binder. A nail binds things together. So a nail like in and of Jesus itself, nailed to a cross, <laughs> like Jesus nailed to a cross, dude. Exactly right, man. One hundred percent. And so this nail symbolism is a binder. And I just tend to look at spirit that way, that spirit, ether. I know people have issues with that word sometimes, but I think it is the ultimate binder, you know, with everything, because it's what everything kind of came from. And so um, to me, that's very intriguing. Also, the nail star is another name for Polaris. It's another name for the pole star. It's either known as uh, the nail star or sky nail, which makes perfect sense because it is the point in the heavens which everything revolves around, kind of like a nail or kind of like the pin in a pinwheel or kind of like the axle of a wheel, right? The axle of a cosmic wheel, if you will. And so under this system, this domain is very masculine. This other side is very feminine. I've kind of been saying that, uh, and I kind of, you know, I wax and wane with all this stuff, but, you know, is it that this is a man's world within a feminine universe? You know, when people say it's a man's world, is that true? It seems to me like that's kind of true. But I think if it's true, it exists within a feminine cosmos, that that's kind of the deal. And so... Um, just to wrap it up with the high priestess card, there is a uh, Venus connection with all this stuff. Even Venus starting with a V corresponding with Roman numeral five, uh, Venus making a five pointed star or flower in the night sky over the course of eight years from the perspective of Earth. The fact that we always put a pentacle or pentagram on a disc to indicate Earth in the tarot, you know, or uh, the coins, right, to indicate Earth with a five-pointed star, I think is very interesting. Um, but if you go to the next slide, you'll see that the symbol for Venus actually overlays very nicely with the Kabbalistic tree of life. And that very cool. Is, Can I pause you on that on that weave for, for a second? Please, please. I want to bring in a li this seemed like uh, when you're talking about the pet crossing over <laughs> and, uh, you know, my condolences for that. I know even with a good perspective on that, they are still their essence exists and cannot be destroyed. I know that's not easy. So, you know, my condolences to you, and Michelle. Thank you. Yeah, I <laughs> I don't I like to think it. about that happening with me, with my pet someday. But the inevitability is there. But you talked about the cross. And the crossing and, you know, the spirit realm or whatever. And I thought this might be a good time to bring up how Buddhism and Judaism are kind of very similar, you know, uh, that there is even so much similarity that there's lots of Jews that practice Buddhism and that there's no prescription against that. Uh, and so where that where I'm coming from in terms of what one of the main reasons for this syncretism between the two systems and that, you know, the therapeutic of the Egyptian college of Alexandria 
were reputed to actually have been Buddhists. And there's Greco Buddhism large enough to span an entire empire between Greece and India at one time in history. Like that, like if there was a, an original system that then moved around the world and kind of evolved in its various offshoots, Buddhism might be a good point to look at as p- perhaps one of the most antiquated versions. So, you know, Buddha was not a God and thus their practices revering Buddha are not really worship per se. So there's not really a problem with overlapping that into Judaism, according to a lot of modern Judaic scholars. And I think that would apply to pretty much any other religious path, <laughs> but it's probably because they're actually kind of the same thing. And so the, the, uh, the Jewish system has this idea of Gilgal Neshamat and Gilgal Neshamat literally translates to cycle or wheel of souls. Mm. And this is the same exact, like basically it's their version or their word for transmigration of souls, which is a big component of Buddhism. Right. And that's what this mediator or this psychopomp character is kind of there for in the system is like the guide to the manes, the guide to the deceased spirits who whatever in the micro, they reincarnate into new lives and the macro everything transmigrates into an entire new turn of the wheel and all things that ever were happen again. There's a new Troy, there's a new, new siege of the seven, seven fold city, et cetera, et cetera. And then Orthodox Jews of the modern age also practice meditation. That's part of their system. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think that that's been at least for a few hundred years, a part of their system. They have an idea of karma, which is midah, Keneged Mida. I don't know if I'm saying that exactly right, but it means measure for measure. And it's the exact same idea as, as karma, except rather than seeing it as a mechanic of the universe per se, they look at it as something that God set in motion. But I don't see a difference, really. <laughs> you know, it's a very semantic idea. And then to the idea of the five, what actually made me think this is a good point to insert this, this little weave is that the five precepts of Buddhism, which forbid adultery, theft, murder, bearing false witness and discourage intoxication are extant in the laws of Noah as well. The laws of Noah are more than five per se, but they have adopted these five precepts, this very important, all important five precepts. And then, you know, a few other things to add to the weave is the, first of all, Buddhism is all into the idea of emanations uh, from a higher dimension or higher realm into the physical incarnate reality so the doctrine of emanations is what the tree of life in Kabbalah is all about, <laughs> you know, and the doctrine of emanations is kind of like a way to find a fingerprint in the roots of all of these systems, honestly. And then um, Old Testament prophets, man, they are bodhisattvas. Even mm-hmm. modern Jewish writers will refer to them as such, just the same as the saints are bodhisattvas of, of Catholicism. So there's a, there's all of that in the mix. And then the last thing I'll say to, uh, to add to the weave is, um, you know, you brought up the whole idea of like, this, this is a man's world is the, the spiritual side or the feminine side or the hidden side more feminine. I find that very interesting. I was really like considering the idea of the yin yang recently and just philologically taking a swing at it and how yin is basically the same as gin. Like D-J-I-N-N. You know, you would pronounce, you can even pronounce a J with a Y sound. And so mm. the jinn are these shadowy entities, invisible realm entities. And then you have uh, Yang, which is philologically 
not that far from sunk or sank, which is a word in Latin referring to holy. I believe in an Etruscan sense, it might even be a reference to a solar deity, uh, sanctus or something like that. So I'm shooting from the hip here, but <laughs> anyway, uh, no, fingerprints great. abound, you know, throughout all of these different versions of religions. But yeah, let's get into the Venus Weaver. First, you probably have responses to all that Jewish Buddhism I just played <laughs> on everyone. It was just interesting. I mean, one thing I'll just say, I think it's fascinating uh, to me, right? The uh, yin yang, right? With the uh, I Ching system, right? Yang, a whole line, right? Very phallic. And then yin, a broken line, feminine, receptive, gateway symbolism, which, which does actually play into uh, the next slide pretty nicely. Because what I was going to point out is that the uh, the Venus glyph, the feminine Venus glyph, the way I interpret it personally is that uh, you are putting the feminine, the, uh, the circle, right, which has infinite points uh, in the predominant predominant position that it's actually more of an important position, you know, reading it from uh, the top down pretty much. And so I've noticed a lot of symbolism that generally is more feminine or masculine that they will put whatever uh, aspect of the glyph that represents that core correspondence up at the top, you know? And so uh, Mars, as an example, the Mars glyph, you know, there's this phallic arrow pointing to the upper right. Right. And so, but it's coming from the feminine basically. And so um, you'll see here in this slide that the Venus glyph, you know, overlays nicely over the Kabbalistic tree life Sephiroth's. And as we've been looking at uh, the hidden Sephiroth that takes you to the other side, supposedly, is right in the middle of the feminine circle. And so that feminine circle being a gateway, you know, almost being a womb or symbolic of the cosmos as a whole, you know, let's so, call it a Yoni. <laughs> <laughs> yep. It's the whole. <laughs> It's the whole dude for sure. Exactly. And so um, to me, I just think that's a really, really fascinating sort of correspondence that one of my books, I, I've, I've seen this layout for years, but now that I understand more so the meaning of a doth, um, I'm seeing that there's, you know, it's a, there's a whole multifaceted sort of thing going on here that I did not appreciate, you know, early on. Um, but now I'm starting to kind of get, and understand. So I thought that was worth kind of sharing with people. Yeah, th that's great weave. I never thought about that before. Yeah, same here, right? And then when you correspond it again with the high priestess card that we just looked at, you know, just kind of all sort of fits like that. The onk. Yeah. It does look like an onk too. Yep, yep, for sure. Exactly. Sonk. Holy onk. <laughs> a hole. There's a hole right here. That's it. <laughs> yep. Okay, so cool to move forward in a slide here. Good with that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So this is just, uh, you know, a slide that I wanted to share regarding, you know, just one interpretation of the, the tree of death or this root system of the tree of life. And oftentimes it is associated with a serpent. And so um, just showing that this is the root system. So symbolically, the idea is that... Um, if the spiritual realm came first and then the material realm came second under this system, that the roots are uh, what's on the other side. The root system, the tunnels of set is what you're really dealing with. So which is the original essence of everything, which, again, 
uh, according to the system, it's more feminine in nature. And then uh, everything else that came afterwards apparently is more masculine in nature. Uh, but the serpent seemingly being appropriate to symbolize both masculine and feminine. But with that serpent going upward, you know, um, head, you know, I think of a more masculine sort of energy. Just think about our genitalia, right? And then Aries being very headstrong and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then the tail tends to be more feminine and kind of trails behind, you know, and is a more passive, right? It's not leading the way necessarily, but it is uh, corresponding to the root system. So the origin. The tail also kind of reveals the feelings of the animal. Oh, is that right? Oh, yeah, right. Totally. Yeah, exactly. Think about your cats. Like when their tail is twitching a certain way, you know that you might not want to get too close. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Exactly. So it's more uh, it kind of symbolizes, you know, what their um, thoughts are or whatever is going through their mind subconsciously, I guess, or emotionally, intuitively sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, as for it being feeling uh, emotion, feminine, the tail. Yeah, I, I see that for sure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and then, uh, the other few slides, we can cruise through them pretty quickly. Sounds but, good. You know, yeah. So I don't, um, you know, I've, I've shared some of this stuff before on my channel having to do with, uh, this central pillar, this cosmic axis. So it's kind of old news for some people, but just showing that there's a, there's a tradition and who knows how long this tradition goes back, you know, of this central pillar being, you know, this ascension point. And so this is just one such example, right? And so you literally have this eye in the sky. I correspond it with the pole star. I think the pole star is the eye in the sky. It's it's a unique star. Everything revolves around it from the perspective of Earth. And then you've got those kundalini serpents, you know, going up that pole. So again, pole, pole star. And then there is an implied two pillars on the side there as well. Great weave from the chat that I can't ignore. Booty Yoga says Alvin Boyd Kuhn lists many words with the letters NK referring to a connection like link, ankle, anchor. And then if we talk about the serpent wrapped around a pole, you cannot forget the Nakash, the brazen serpent, which is a symbol of salvation or thus connecting you to the spiritual realm or the, you know, the divine. So into the K Nakash. Totally, there it is. totally. And I just want to say too, this idea of ascension that there, there is an inner and outer correspondence with all this stuff. So as I'm speaking about the world axis, you know, I'm also speaking about our spine. You know what I mean? And so there's also there's just so many different correspondences that to me, I see that it syncretizes quite a bit. And when I'm referring to, you know, the world tree, I'm referring to the center of of this Taurus field as well, you know. So um, I can kind of get caught up in maybe speaking about it in terms of this external thing with the night sky and all that kind of stuff. But there is an internal mirroring um, aspect to it as well that, you know, there are some people that look at this as a wholly psychological sort of thing, that it all has to do with your inner journey and things happening within not necessarily what's happening you know externally physically um and so this middle point though you know here you see a traditional uh freemasonic tracing board it looks like it's pretty modern um but the core symbolism of the tradition is there and you will generally see that the central pillar is associated with this eye this eye in the sky, there generally is a uh, lunar solar aspect. And then what I refer to as the polar aspect, 
which is uh, indicated with this eye in the sky, you will see that stairway going to the eye, right? So this is this stairway to heaven sort of idea, this ascension point, uh, the uh, the way the psychopomp Hermes goes, you know, to the other side or whatever. So this central pillar here relates to the central pillar in the Kabbalistic tree life um, is what I'm trying to say. But I do think it's interesting here, actually, in this tracing board, that what looks to be like solar energy appears to have a feminine face. And then also what looks to be like lunar energy has more of a masculine face within it. So I think they're kind of playing around with this idea. Um, And then the go ahead. (laughs) Well, you know, I might have a a clue to the mystery of the tracing boards. We're putting East as the top. Mm-hmm. Okay, so first of all, part of the deal with Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism, is the idea of the Adam Kadmon. And you'll hear it described in a lot of different ways, but one way that I like to describe it, or what I think makes sense, is that it's sort of the, in the Platonic sense, between the realm of form and idea, that the Adam Kadmon is the idea of man. So it's the complete and the perfect, perfect perfected man in, in no way. Uh, in the realm of separation and thus kind of like uniqueness and difference. So anyway, <laughs> Adam Kadmon, there's two things to talk about there for, but in terms of where it relates to East, well, in Hebrew, the Q D M Kaf Dalat Mem means East or sun. And so Cadmus Again, CDM, Cadmus, or QDM in Greek, he's the one that brings the 17 letters to the Greeks from the Phoenicians or the Pelasgi, very famously so. And then Buddha was called Kodam, which has got CDM in it. That's one of the mm. names of Buddha. Same exact same as the QDM, the, the east or the sun. Sun rises in the east as well. And then the Adam, as far as the Adam part of the Kadmon, I'm going to quote from. Uh, Spirit world, a God's acre for winds of the soul. This is a really good quote. According to Stephanus, oh, oops, I moved it on my screen. I'm going to go over here. Okay. According to Stephanus, Kronos or Saturn was called Adonos, which in Latin would terminate in M, thus dam, meaning earth and man, according to Parkhurst. While Higgins noted ADM of India, which means first, is Adam of Genesis. Quote, Stephanus Peri Polion Polion on Adana, I'm reading Greek, tells us that Kronos or Saturn was called Adonos, and that this Adonis was the son of heaven and earth. So basically, where I'm going with this is that Adam is also Kronos, is also Adonis in like just with the way the language has evolved over time. He's the first man. The sun rises first in the east. And in this idea of the transmigration or the this doctrine of the reincarnating savior, that like Krishna is an incarnation of Vishnu. Christ is an incarnation of um, <laughs> or like John, John the Baptist is an incarnation of Elijah. I forgot who Christ is an incarnation of Melchizedek, etc. So it's very interesting because, again, at the top is this east, and then at the top of the tree, of the Kabbalistic tree of life, is Keter, which uh, is like described as a single point or a singularity of all the light of creation 
in one point. And that that's also your portal. That's your Polaris. It's your head, head meaning arche, arche wisdom, et cetera. And in, <laughs> I've been learning Greek, right? <laughs> like to speak modern Greek. And I noticed that the way that they say Kronos with like time as a referring to time is it sounds like this Kronos. And so that Kronos sounds a lot like to the way they pronounce it. It sounds like Hornos, Hornos, Kronos. Mm. Like it's very close to just saying horn mm. and horn is a word referring to Kronos anyway. And also radiance, like as in the, the rays of the sun or a single point of, in, of powerful light, like Keter and the horn is at the top of your head. And in, in mythology too, there are beings with a single horn, like a unicorn or a narwhal. And that's ref, like, that's symbolic of some kind of sort of uh, unlimited or undivided mm. sovereign power as in you would wear on the crown and the horn terminates in a single point in, yeah. in this sense. So I I'm there's probably some weave somewhere of some priesthoods that actually would wear like a single horn right at the point of the third eye or on the forehead. All I can think of is like uh summoners and final fantasy video games that I played when I was a kid had a horn uh, <laughs> right in the middle of their forehead. But anyway, I've been hogging the mic a lot, but I think that Adam Cadmon is a reference to the crown, Keter, Kronos, the East, Cadmus, the bringer of letters. All of these things are in the mix. Very interesting. No, I love it, dude. Um, super cool. What it reminds me of, just another angle, per, uh, possible angle with the Eastern uh, labeling and the the latter clearly going towards the East there's a woman, her name is uh, Judy K. King, and she has a book called The Isis Thesis, and she decodes um, these Egyptian hieroglyphs. And a lot of people think that she uh, does really good work and that she kind of has put together um, new interpretations of some of the hieroglyphs and what they actually mean. And um, basically, in her material, she was saying that um, there was this Egyptian idea that your soul goes to the east, east, and then it spirals towards the north. And so I thought that was really intriguing that she mentioned that. And then also in her material, too, she relates this opening at the north to a horn, you know, the horn of this great bull. And so um, and that there is this cusp or this opening, you know, at the north, you know, that, you know, people go through their souls go through. And so um, that's according to her material. So to me, there's a potential northern connection to the east and traveling to the north, north. And then also, too, in uh, the Night Side of Eden material, Kenneth Grant. I mean, I don't know how relevant or uh, how accurate his information is with all of this stuff, but he was suggesting that this idea of the North actually was turned into the West at some point. And I believe he said, actually, I'll be vulnerable here. Uh, do you know what the introduction of uh, equinoctial time is? Is it, it has to do with the equinoxes. Does does that ring a bell? Have you come across this information before by chance? Chance? No, man. I don't think if I have, I don't remember it. I guess I didn't make a mental post-it note. <laughs> Me neither. And so he mentions it several times that the introduction of uh, equinoctial, equinoctial time changed a few different things. And his understanding, according to his research, take it or leave it, was that uh, 
a Northern understanding or reverence was eventually turned into a Western understanding or reverence. And I can't not think of manifest destiny, go West young man, develop the West and all of the, you know, probably propaganda material we received about the, the settlement and founding of the West and people traveling Westward, you know? So uh, I think that there's a possible Western and Northern connection as well, you know, um, in today's world. So I don't know. I'm just throwing all of this stuff on the table. My channel is called symbolic studies cause I'm a perpetual student. <laughs> and so I'm still just, uh, trying to figure all this stuff out. Really cool. Yeah. Uh, there's even some people that point out that maybe old maps East is West and West is East. So who knows, but Whoa. there's, there is a thread of inversions throughout this material, uh, you know, studying spiritual material that inversions seem to be a popular thing. And, you know, eventually too, if you do a good enough job with inverting or duping other people with, uh, with something, then, you know, your, your next generation might be dupes of your own deception. So then they, yeah. then they might do some inverting and it might just flip back and forth. And then there's like, it's like a pole shift constantly back and forth in a weird way in a hermetic sense there aren't actually opposites there's just degrees anyway so very cool right right yeah no exactly um and so i just have a couple more quick tracing boards same idea we don't have to get into it but you know this idea that there is this implied central pillar here this pillar of transcendence this is related to doth this is related to that hidden sephiroth to go to the other side in my personal opinion and so also too the eye being a yoni shape. I think that one of the things that's being implied with this all seeing eye business is that there's actually this um, feminine aspect, you know, of the single eye being the yoni, being the vagina, being the womb, being the gateway, you know, this two way street. We, we're going back and forth seemingly. Um, and so uh, I think that that's interesting. And then you also see, too, that on top of the other two pillars, you have these very clear figures that represent, um, uh, you know, the divine feminine, different aspects of the divine feminine. We become pupils of the divine. What's up, Joshua? Yeah, that's a good comment. Thanks, buddy. Totally, totally. Um, and then the next one, too, is just it's a very obvious reference to this central pillar. Um, and then that's Jacob's Ladder. You got the seven stars. Versa major, in my opinion. And then there is this uh, implication that this is the stairway to heaven and you're going and transitioning to the other side. Um, so let me ask you just very clearly and bluntly. So um, what's your whole idea with uh, what happens after death? And, uh, you know, do you have a concrete sort of uh, idea on what you think potentially happens? And is there any sort of framework that you have to describe it, I guess? Well, I've heard it all. <laughs> I, I think yeah. I've, I've heard it all. I've been a student of spirituality for quite some time. I've been interested in fringe information for even longer. And so I honestly am happy to say I have no freaking clue, man. I mean, mm-hmm. I have a lot of stories. I have near-death experiences people share. But my own, if if anything, my own experiences are from the DMT experimentation or psychedelic mushroom experimentation from my youth, in which case, you know, I think um, if I had to just put what comes from my heart in this moment, I think that whatever it is that occurs after the, 
current incarnation we're in expires, that in a way we're already there and we never left. And so it's not really as much of a transition per se as a shift in perspective. And that's my that's my take on it. I don't really have more I want to say about it than that, I guess, because I don't know. <laughs> I really don't know. But I think it's kind of like, I guess I do have a little more I'll say about it. I think it's like when you have an idea and in that idea, you get carried away daydreaming in a train of thought so intense that someone snaps their fingers next to you and they're like, hey, come back. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> And I think that's what life is. I think life is us having an idea that is so intense that we forget that it's an idea. And whenever we snap out of that idea temporarily for what we call death, we never actually left where we were to begin with. And so I don't think it's that big of a deal, <laughs> but that's, I guess that's what I think. Uh, I've never really given an answer for for quite some time on that question. But other than that, I, I think it's also possible that our ideas of what is on quote unquote, the other side will largely color the evolution of our idea of ourself as we lose track of this idea. So right. how clear we get about our actual present moment experience as a grander, larger eternal soul, or how further we go into delusion based on the layers of dogma that we might try to take with us outside of this particular construct or realm. I think that could be different from person to person. Excellent, dude. Great answer. Um, and no, you're totally right. The whole idea concept, you know, the idea of an idea, you know, the thought that uh, ideas, you know, they came first before everything else. And so to me, the way I've been looking at like physical objects as well, this cup right here, the idea of this cup existed before the physical cup did, you know, it is more so an idea than anything else. And so that's why everything has so much meaning to it, because the idea actually came before anything else. You know, the purpose of a thing came before the actual thing itself, in my opinion, the concept of it. Right. And so we're talking about, you know, the world of um, dreams and symbols and, and, you know, thought forms and things like that preceding everything else. And so this is partly what the night side of Eden, what the tunnels of set is about, is that apparently under this system, you can actually have contact with some of these ideas and um, what some of the Lovecraftian practitioners go on about and talk about is the fact that you can contact the oldest ideas and the oldest concepts that have existed, um, which they refer to as being the ancient ones or the old ones. So really, really primordial thought forms, not recommended. And I'll just say too that the tunnels of set system, I just, it's not for the faint of heart. And so uh, there are people who go into this rabbit hole and in, in this world and they start trying to talk to things, channel things. Uh, there's this whole other side of this, by the way, where um, some of these practitioners and magicians who have written about this stuff have a, a, a an understanding that this is where ETs come from. And this whole idea of abduction, you know, actually has a relationship to this night side uh, clipothic tree. And that a lot of the ET phenomenon is coming from this universe B, this other side. And so um, some of these people actually incorporate ET abduction scenarios in their rituals 
which is something I talked about a few weeks ago. And I think that's when you invited me uh, to chat about <laughs> to chat about this whole entire topic. So uh, maybe we can save that for hour two. Oh, man, I think we're loaded for hour two. <laughs> fully loaded um but you know before we make that transition i kind of think that the people on the free side deserve to know what mario thinks about what happens after we die oh yeah totally i mean my personal opinion is that i really think it's as simple as this i think that the reality we live in can best be described visually as a circle with a dot inside of it it's the circumpunct, you know, it's the monad. I think that might be the most accurate map that we have of this whole entire thing, you know? So a lot of people are trying to find the right map for everything. You know, where do we live? What does it look like? Some can get really complicated and have a bunch of detail and it's all nuanced and stuff like that. I think that's really interesting, but I wonder if it's even our place to kind of find, you know, um, that much detail within what we actually live within you know it's almost like a fish trying to understand you know the body of water it lives within and it lives within the ocean or something it's just kind of one of these things where it might be so beyond you know our comprehension that um it might be hard to fathom but when i think of the circle and the dot there's so much that gets syncretized with that obviously most people know that as the symbol for the sun it's also the symbol for target, <laughs> you know, but I think that within the circle and the dot, you can make correspondences with the world tree, that central dot being more phallic in nature, being more masculine in nature, being that trunk from the top down. I think you can uh, kind of uh, associate it with the Taurus field, with the Taurus field having this whole complete sort of aspect to it, but also this very tight, dense aspect to it as well. And energy is cycling through literally the inner and the outer, the circle with the dot, the circumpunct, you know, I think that the circle, in my personal opinion, it does appear very feminine. So you have infinite dots around this circle, right? Think of uh, pi or phi and how it relates to, uh, you know, the curves of life and the circular nature of um, a lot of things here. Um, and then that central dot being one point. So you have one point within the infinite, one point within all of these other points. And so to me, as I look at it through this lens as well, that circle would be the feminine, that would be the cosmos, the womb, and then that dot would be the masculine that resides within her. I think you can also make the case that you know, dot. The dot. <laughs> totally. Yeah, exactly right. Totally, dude. And so um, I see that circle as being feminine, not unlike Sophia, not unlike the Virgin Mary. And then that dot being masculine, not unlike the Demiurge, um, not unlike Christ. Right. Or even uh, that circle could be the Queen of Heaven. So it could be Virgo. And that dot in the middle is more so like Leo which are right next to each other. And you see the relationship played out in the strength card or the lust card, depending on uh, the deck. And so this whole idea of universe A and universe B, I think that we live somewhere on that dot and that there is a whole big other place that we reside within, but it's the same system. 
you know, it's all, it's all onto itself, just like a Taurus field. And so in a lot of ways, you're completely right. It's like, there is no separation between the two. That dot came from the circle and the circle probably came from the dot as well. So um, that's pretty much kind of where I'm at with everything. So if there is this whole stairway to heaven business and you're going to this other side and it's undifferentiated and it's the realm of spirit or whatever, the circle and the dot to me kind of explains all of this stuff in the very, very simple glyph. And of course, that central dot to me is a northern symbol. You know, I think of it as the world axis or cosmic axis. And so um, and then the circle around it could kind of be like the turning of heaven you know the wheel of heaven uh wheel of heaven spinning around it so that central dot could also be polaris and so i see it more so as a geocentric symbol personally than i than a heliocentric symbol but i understand most people nowadays see it as that very cool man so if i'm not mistaken it's like you're saying your point of awareness can either be somewhere on that external perimeter circle or it can be fully pointed inward at that dot and maybe on the point of death, <laughs> the point of death, because death is like a, a point, you know, maybe that's the instance where we get to fully comprehend the dot rather than being constantly pulled back our attention, pulled back to something in the perimeter of the circle. And that circumpunct you're describing is very much like a, it's also the 10 of Kabbalah. You know, it's the one in the zero. It's the pull in the hole. If you're looking at a, a one inside of a zero from above, you know, then that one would kind of be a dot. The, a line becomes a dot when viewed in a different direction, so, so to yeah. speak. No, exactly right. Yeah, 100 percent. So even just within that simple glyph, I think there you could talk about it for hours. There, there's a lot going on there for sure. And then the mathematics behind that as well. And like the center of, of the circle, right? And then the radius and circumference and angles and all this other stuff. And the fact that it looks like an eye as well, you know, it just, it goes on and on. Man. Okay. So I think it's, uh, if you're okay to go a little longer and then transition maybe in about 10 minutes to yeah, the, the second hour, I've, I felt like we might do more than two hours, a little bit more than two hours. So whatever, whatever works, dude, I'm, I'm here for you, man. Okay, so because I wanted to maybe throw some of these ideas into the first Please. hour that I'm going to lay out and then uh, get your response on. So I think, again, as I alluded to, I think this whole Jewish mysticism, Kabbalah thing is Gnosticism at its core, that it's from the same place. It's the therapeutics, it's the eclectics, it's whatever you want to call them. And so I'm going to go through just a couple of my notes on that. Uh, so that we have more full blast, just <laughs> uh, other stuff to talk about in the second half. But one thing about Gnosticism that we are aware of in terms of sort of the pop culture uh, interpretations of it is about this fallen world, right? And in the current, the modern Judaism, they have this idea called Tikkun Olam. And that means the repair or the rectification of the world. And a lot of this modern Kabbalism really bottlenecks in one individual named Isaac Luria from the 16th century, which, you know, it's kind of almost like a cult mindset. <laughs> it's very interesting how single teachers can kind of shape and, and change the entire flow of a particular system. But he's definitely one of those individuals, Isaac Luria. And from his teaching, basically the point, <laughs> back to the point of Kabbalah is to liberate the light, 
to liberate the sparks of divine light that got trapped in physical reality created when the light vessels in the more perfect world, maybe that's universe B, exploded. And so this exploding vessels of light somehow causes this trapped divine light in our reality, which is the cause of suffering and the feeling of separation from God. And to return to the whole weave of Judeo-Buddhism, that's basically Buddhism as well. That clinging is the cause of suffering. And if you end clinging, you end nirvana. Well, very much that's basically the overall Gnostic idea. You know, that your dharma is to end your clinging to material reality and that some, that will take you to nirvana. Well, I can't help also but notice that dharma is like tar ma or tor ma. Mm. And <laughs> so we have, you know, the the lord or the rock or the tor uh, and then the ma of it all. That's your one and your zero as well. And that's the unification of opposites. That's your liberation, your dharma. So... Then, you know, again, with with Gnosticism, it's the doctrine of wisdom or the doctrine of emanations and wisdom referring to this keter, keter or this head. Words for wisdom include polis or pole, like the pole <laughs> and include the and that's the top or the head of the system. And you have wisdom uh, in the Gnostic literature right there in the name of a lot of the texts coming from the Mandeans. And Mandeans and Judaism are super interlinked, but Manda in Aramaic, Manda means the same thing as Gnosis in Greek, same word basically. And so wisdom, you know, the Buddhism linked to that, well, Bodhi means wisdom. A Buddha is one who has attained Bodhi and Bodhi literally means wisdom. But interestingly in Urdu, which is the language they speak in Pakistan and it was an Indian language at one point, it's Indo-Aryan is what they call it, a South Asian language, Urdu. Buddha actually means old man, mm. the old man, back to the Kronos of it all, <laughs> or Adam, because Adam is the oldest man. <laughs> and uh, even like Noah or Menu or other lawgivers, they're like an incarnation of the first man of Adam. But this old man uh, idea and this wisdom idea, it really shows up in Kabbalah through the sphere of Chokmah, or ho actually more appropriately pronounced Chokmah, Chokmah. And uh, that's spelled Hey, Kof, Mem, Hey, or K or H-K-M-E. And in my opinion, Chokmah is completely cognate to Sophia. And in fact, Instead of Chokmah, they actually in the Septuagint, the Greek writing, the Greek Jewish writings, they just call wisdom Sophos or Sophia. Mm. And if you notice the spelling of Chokmah with the kof in there, they both have oaf in there, which is a word for serpent. Back to the serpent element. Right. And then, oh, man, that's interesting. <laughs> and the last thing I want to throw onto the pile before I get your responses on this is how like in Arabic, a word for wisdom is Hakim. And, or actually the word for wisdom itself is hikmah, hikmah, which sounds like chokmah, but it was the different vowel point. But uh, hakim is a word that means wise man, wise man. And who would the wise man be? An old man would be a wise man traditionally. But the other right. word, the other thing that hakim can mean is physician. Mm. So the physicians are the therapeutes. You know, they're the doctors of the, the body and the mind in terms mm. of their role from the Alexandrian college 
when Egypt was sort of the ground zero of their empire. So there's, there's all that. <laughs> wow. Dude, that is fascinating. There's a few things in here that uh, I'm very intrigued with. Um, I'll say real quick regarding Kether. Um, it's really interesting that ether is right there as well, right? You remove the K and you have ether, you know? So um, this idea, right, that everything comes from ether. And uh, also too, just want to say that I feel as though it's really important related to ether or the concept of spirit that a lot of cultures have a word that means everything that means all of the things in between all of the things, you know, this liminal space and that um, there almost needs to be a catch all word. I think that implies all of that stuff. And I think that there's been a number of words throughout history that actually, uh, are corresponding with that and ether would be one. So I think it's useful in a way because if spirit, you know, one of the symbols that corresponds with spirit is a spiral, you know, this continual spiral, right? And so it's just like, it goes on and on and on and on. And the circle corresponds with spirit as well, as I've been saying with this infinite amount of points around a circle, which is why pi is infinite. And so in this world of the infinite, just like a Taurus field, where it just continually goes unto itself and expands, contracts, expands, projects, receives, you know, um, it would make sense here that we would almost need words that encapsulate everything. And so I don't think that this is a negative thing personally. Uh, I think ether is one of these words. I think spirit has been used as one of these words. I think mercury actually has been used as one of these words. And I've also heard from other authors that even, you know, voodoo as an example is one of these words that we need words. We need a word to encapsulate the thing between all the other things, this ultimate binding sort of thing that is basically infinite. And so because it matters and there's there's meaning behind it and that um, because this element or this dynamic is infinite. Um, you can't have infinite words to describe it. So it might make more sense to even just have one word, you know, that you can say to describe what you're referring to spirit ether. So Kether, Kether, ether, it's right there. Um, this whole old man business, just want to say with my recent research into all of this stuff under this hard line, sort of, uh, dark feminine cosmological framework, um, uh, apparently under this tradition, instead of looking at a Trinity as being a uh, mother, father, and child, there is actually an alternative Trinity that I've never heard of before that I would love to get your take on. And it's actually mother, child, and then pubescent child. And this child is a son. And so it would be mother, son, pubescent son. And that the pubescent son actually uh, takes the place of the father because now he's old enough and has gone through puberty to actually facilitate having children, you know? So to me, uh, that's a very, very interesting, interesting sort of weave, interesting rabbit hole to kind of consider this idea of it's not a father. Um, there's no father in this situation because Sophia, this dark feminine, this primordial goddess, this great uh, queen of heaven, she did not have a partner. She created her partner and her child became the father. So I think this is an interesting alternative take that I've never heard before until very recently. So mother, child, pubescent child, not mother, father, child. So just something to kind of chew on. Um, and then also this uh, Soph 
Fia sort of dynamic that you brought up regarding uh, Chokma wisdom, the second Sephiroth. Um, there's also this idea of this primordial goddess being referred to as the split one or this uh, idea that she was actually uh, broken into two. Um, it kind of reminds me of the myth of Tiamat, which is like this dark dragon mother and that she is split in two. And uh, I think the mythology says that she was split in two either, uh, by her child and and or by wind. Maybe he's associated with the wind, but that we live within her, that she was complete. And at some point she split and we actually dwell within her. Um, and this is related also to this idea that set that when he was born, he actually cleaved his way out of his mom. Um, that so he cut himself out of mother. And so this is how she became split. And this is how she became two. And so um, the fact that that separate corresponds with the number two and uh, with wisdom and, and potentially Sophia and all that, I just thought I would mention that sort of correspondence with this splitting of two woman splitting in two, you know, and even two just saying as well um, for reproduction purposes, you know, uh, the legs being open to receive and then to project to bring forth life and everything else. So I think there's potentially, uh, you know, a correspondence there metaphorically. Oh man. Yeah. There's lots there. <laughs> uh, so if you look into the Gnostic Nag Hammadi scriptures, which I think are Mandean or said to be, although I don't trust their veracity in terms of the antiquity of them, I think they could be, potentially more recent forgeries in particular based on who was putting it out there. The United Nations UNESCO was who gave us that. So I don't know, but in those texts, Eve, who is an extension of Sophia or like an incarnation of Sophia, she mm -hmm. talks about being her own father and you know, her own son at the same time. Oh yeah. And so when you, when you really get into the syncretic view of these systems, you find that all the gods and goddesses, anywhere, everywhere, resolve into a trinity. And then that trinity resolves into one being that is hermaphroditic and is self-generating. So there's a lot here, but, you know, I brought up that idea of the, uh, that the Jewish mysticism has called, let's see, let me make sure I say the word right. It is Gilgal Neshamat. But, well, basically that's the wheel of souls. Well, this word, Galgal is it's got a similar root that also where we get Golgotha, which is the skull or the top or the head. Mm. And it also is a word that can mean not just wheel, but whirlwind. And so when we're talking about Eve, the mother, well, Eve is a word you can actually derive. It means life in Hebrew. There's a word that you can derive directly out of the four letter name of God, Yad He Vav He, that the Yad can be an I. Hey can be E, Vav is V, Hey is E. So Yiv or Eve is the mother that is also part of the Tetragrammaton or Jehovah. And that this word, this Jehovah or Yov, which is another way to transliterate Yad He Vav He becomes Yov, is the god of the whirlwind, Jupiter or Thor or any of the gods that are correlate with the Hercules constellation with the Vajra, the thunderbolt. And this whirlwind is symbolic of the primordial chaos whence everything comes. So not only is this father, God, son, 
three in one Trinity, God responsible for the generation or the ordering of the chaos into the physical manifest reality, but is also stirring that chaos or Mm. stirring or uh, spinning that grindstone of the the Hamlet's mill, you know, type uh, metaphor. So that's symbolic of the pole star, but it also shows up in the form of the Hercules constellation, which can be looked at as the kneeling Vajra wielding thunder God, Jove or his son. And then it can also be looked at as the swastika uh, shape, depending on which way you trace out the stars of the Hercules region of the sky. So it's the whirl, the whirlwind, the Golgol, Gilgal. Right. Wow. Dude, you, you actually, uh, my mind was kind of just blown with some of the stuff you're saying because it, uh, it, it lines up with just some of the things I'm learning right now. As an example, you were talking about yod heh vav heh right? yod heh vav heh Hey is uh, the numerological correspondence with hey is five. Okay. So what are the odds that I was kind of talking about the five and the pentacle and it being this, this in-between sort of number and the pentagram being this in-between sort of shape and all of this uh, stuff that relates to pi and phi and the golden spiral, the Fibonacci sequence, um, as it relates to the Hierophant card, right, which corresponds with the nail and all of that. But yod hey vav hey hey being there twice right within four letters corresponding with the five and then hey also being uh, meaning window that's one of the traditional my understanding correspondences with it is this window idea and it's like a window where you know a window to what you know is it to universe b is it to the other side you know i look at by the way just kind of like bringing things around to this the physical aspect of everything i think when you look at the night sky i think you're looking at the spirit realm so i don't think that universe b is this mystical sort of place that you can't understand and fathom and whatever it's like just look at the sky just look at the night sky look at what all of these different stars are doing and planets are doing you're you're looking at the spirit world and so they've turned it into something else this physical place that you can only talk about in terms of measurements how far this is away what this planet is made out of blah 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 light years and etc right but it's way more than that it's the other side that is universe b in my opinion so yod hey vav hey five uh it corresponding to window which actually my understanding too is uh hey corresponds with the star card and i've been saying that i think that the star that it's referring to is the star of stars in my opinion which is the pole star right so uh when you see the star and the star card it's a reference to one star um, according to my research and understanding of things, but also regarding hey, right? Doesn't it not correspond with E in the English alphabet? Yeah, which is the fifth letter, and we're talking about the divine feminine, the dark feminine, the feminine that is potentially uh, the primordial goddess and everything else. And you have Eve, which is a correspondence or an emanation of this E V E. 5v roman numeral 5e5 five, five. eve encodes 555 that's interesting cuz there's a 555 in jesus as well if you look at it Ooh. in the septenary gematria nice and then the only word in the english language in septenary gematria that is all fives is river 55555 five, five, five. whoa nice that's very interesting too very cool. I love it. 
So Mario, where can people, we're going to switch over to the premium side now. Uh, thanks for the extra time on the free side. I, I, we're just on fire. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> yeah, I wanted to give people a little more. So uh, before I give everyone the, the deets on how to join us on the second half, please tell them how they can find more of your work and maybe connect with you or work with you directly. Yeah, totally. Thanks, man. Um, before I get to that, one last final thing, I just have to say the Egyptians interpretation of the underworld, which is what we're referring to universe B, the shadow side of everything, the night sky, that is the underworld. There's this heavy correspondence with the Northern sky, uh, being the underworld itself. And they refer to this underworld as the Duat, right? The symbol for the Duat, according to the Egyptians was the five pointed star. Right. Of all the things it could be, it's a five pointed star. And so to me, just Duat is Doth too. You know, all vowels interchange. Duat, Doth, it's the same thing. There you go. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So five pointed star. I mean, to me, that blew my mind when I was reading that recently. So um, people can find me at symbolicstudies.com if they're interested. I have a YouTube channel, Symbolic Studies. Also, I'm on Instagram, symbolic.studies. It's one of my uh, main hubs. If people are interested in a tarot reading or a study session, anything along those lines, they can reach out. I'm also available for design work. So one of the reasons why I'm uh, interested in symbolism is because I've been in Photoshop for the last 20 years, you know, playing around with symbols and shapes and graphics and images and things like that. So, uh, you know, if they want someone who's more symbolically literate than the average, you know, they can reach out for that as well. But uh, yeah, man, looking That's forward to it lightly. This was fun. Let's say it likely that dude is very symbolically literate. Awesome. And, you know, you're, <laughs> right you're great at not getting married to an interpretation or getting caught swept up in, you know, true believer, itis, dogmatic stuff. Uh, you're yeah. open and uh, you're exploring and you know, that's what we really need. You're a gentleman and a scholar. It's always such a pleasure to work together. And we've got some more to talk about in the second half. So people can join us on Rockfin. If they are a member to premium services on Rockfin, they are able to watch the second hour live. And if they sign up through myself or through Mario's channel, Symbolic Studies, they will be able to catch this episode. And uh, we'll have Mario repost it to his Rockfin and his Patreon after the fact. And also, if you want to just jump on my Patreon instead of doing Rockfin, there will be a replay posted there as well. So we're going to have a great time in the second part. And thank you, everyone, for hanging out with us this beautiful Sunday evening here. I'm dropping the link in the chat or you can find it in the description of this episode. But also, people, I'd like you to know that um, I'm available for biofield tuning sessions if you want to jump in and get on my calendar to get your energy field aligned the possibilities for how your life can improve through that are pretty hard to overstate but you know we don't have space to go into it i've talked about it at length just want to make sure everyone knows they can find that at innerversepodcast.com slash sound dash healing for more information on how to get yourself a session i've also got the excellent audiobooks from the spirit world series by dylan Sicosio available for you to pick up on amazon if you haven't ever used an audible free trial membership i recommend hopping into the description of this episode finding the link and getting your first book free hear me narrate a very powerful syncretic text the spirit world books the newest one being holy sailors the holy sailors was a pleasure to narrate and i hope you guys check it out so one more time i'll drop the link to the rockfin version of this stream in the chat i see some people already trickling over there please feel free to say hello and fill up our live chat there 
It's a little empty at the moment while everyone's been on YouTube. And in the meantime, we're going to take about a three and a half minute intermission and Mario will be back on the other side. So thank you everyone for being here. Been fun so far and I look forward to continuing. Thanks, Mario. Yeah, you got it. <laughs> 